It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Our guest today is a jazz pianist and vocalist, lyricist, award-winning national broadcaster, a record and video producer, a scholar, a journalist, a father, an author, and he is the subject of the most downloaded episode of all that's Jazz the Podcast. He was our very first guest and is our guest once again today. His name is Ben Sidron. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to hear that uh, people found me on your podcast. Indeed, and they continue to find you, and we are appreciative of that. Uh, and, and I think bottom line, Ben, it comes down to is it speaks well for who and what you are because people want to constantly hear your story, and I think that's very, very good. Fantastic. Well, my story is their story in the sense that I'm not selling anything. I'm just trying to get through this uh, planet Earth experience. And uh, we'll look at this as a little bit of a follow-up. First of all, on a personal note, let me ask, uh, you're doing well. I know this 2020 pandemic has been just outrageous for so many people, and you and yours are doing just fine? We are. Thank you for asking. Yep, we're, we're doing fine. Good, good. Well, that goes without saying here as well, and uh, we've been very fortunate that we are still here and still kicking. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it looks like you certainly, like all of us, have had some time on your hands during the year 2020, but you didn't just sit on your hands. You were involved in a lot of different projects, and one of which I'd like to start with today, and that is the aspect of you being the author. During 2020, uh, you published a book called The Ballad of Tommy LaPuma, and we never had an opportunity to talk about this, so I, I'd like to explore a little bit about that, if, if we may, and ask you uh, first, this sounds like it was a project that was a long time in the making, and in reading the preface to the book itself, as I started getting into it, you were very clear and distinct about the fact that this isn't a, a personal biography, per se, but it's a series of stories about the man. Tell us about your approach to this. Well, exactly. Uh, the reason it's called The Ballad of Tommy LaPuma is because in some ways it's like a song or, or let, let's say uh, like an album, because as you notice, uh, I don't say chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I say track one, track two, track three. Tommy's a record man. I met him in the record business. His life and his story is from the beginning tied up with music, not only literally saving his, his life uh, emotionally, but also getting him away out of, uh, out of the situation he was in uh, and out of town and out into the world. It's a story that I think a lot of people have, have uh, a relationship with because music did that for all of us at one time. Now, maybe not so much. So to be able to write the ballad for Tommy LaPuma, I was basically singing kind of a love song to this very good friend of mine. Uh, I met Tommy 50 some years ago, and he was just one of my best friends. And the stories, as you know, are just um, remarkable, really, truly amazing. The, 
it starts with a murder on a dirt path in Sicily and it goes through bootlegging and it goes through the record business when it was so small, people would literally throw albums in the trunk of their car and drive somewhere and try to sell them. And he bridged this whole experience to the point where in one generation, he, uh, he got five Grammys. He, he, he really lived an American dream. I don't think that dream exists anymore. So in a way, that's the other reason why I set out to write this thing after 50 years of knowing the man. So your acquaintance with him developed out of signing with his record label, which was Blue Thumb. What is it that made the two of you click or develop this chemistry to where you had access to him, for one, uh, and had an opportunity to, over years period of time, do recorded sessions and sitting down with him and exploring his story? Um, that's a hard question to answer why we were so simpatico, but we were, I mean, when I first met, first of all, he was a very easy guy to like. He was very affable. That's just who he was. He also, he was an autodidact. He, uh, was self-educated. He dropped out of school in eighth grade. He, uh, lived a real rough and tumble life. And at one point when he was working in the record business in California, he, met up with the, with a guy named Bobby Dale, who was a DJ, who turned him on to literature and films. And he became a sponge. He really did. And so down deep, he was always interested in conversations. And the record business was how the conversation started. But usually, they went in all these different directions. And I met him, actually, <laughs> I was trying to hide the fact that I had gone to graduate school back then. In this was like the very early 70s. Uh, the record business wanted to believe that if you were recording, you were somehow this uh, wild spirit. You know, this is the days of uh, the Who throwing the TV out the motel window or whatever. And so I wasn't promoting the fact that I was in love with education either. But very quickly, Tommy and I discovered we both had love of film, love of books, love of talking about politics and stuff. And so it, our, our friendship really went way beyond the business. He's, he's somebody who we would have been friends if we had met in a totally different uh, arena. It wasn't necessarily because we were both in the business. And I think that's really a key to, to solid friendship. You know, if the friendship doesn't hang on to one aspect of the relationship, then it can go on as time passes. And, and that, that's what it was. We just uh, had so much in common. So when you started developing the relationship, you actually uh, got together in a variety of different places and you tape recorded uh, the sessions. Uh, was he comfortable with that? Or, or was it just because the two of you were so relaxed with each other and there was a vote of confidence on each other's part that that was allowed? That's, that, that's also an interesting question, because early on, I said, Tommy, your story is amazing. We, we should document it. I mean, I, I recognized how, I mean, it's almost filmic when you, when you discuss his life and what he went through. And I mean, working with Miles Davis and Barbara Streisand and all these people. And at the same time, just being this ex-barber from Cleveland down in his heart. I mean, the, the story from the beginning was something that I wanted to capture. And he didn't seem to care 
Although I have to say, you know, he lived his life around tape recorders. So he was very sensitive to what they were and what they could do. Uh, but I think, as you put it, he was so comfortable with me sitting in a restaurant or driving in his car that after a while, I think he enjoyed it. I think he saw the advantage of getting his story down with somebody who really appreciated it and shared his sense of humor and his sense of his sense of history. So years went by, I just kept recording it. And then about five years ago, I, I started to say to him, well, let's start to think about putting this together in a book or something. We wrestled with that for a while. And then as the book uh, paints, uh, he passed away suddenly. I mean, literally, I was on the phone with him one day and three weeks later, he was gone. And it was just such a shock that I really devoted myself to, to writing the book as kind of a, as I say, it's kind of a, like a love song to, to, to my friend who died. Well, and as you pointed out, in using that love song description, uh, like you said, all of the chapters in the book are listed as tracks rather than chapters. For myself, even in reading the book, uh, I, I, I can see where some reviewers ha have hit the nail on the head, and it seems very conversational in tone and that you are a storyteller. Uh, and it's like, okay, kids, sit down. Once upon a time, there was this man named Tommy LaPuma, and it goes on from there. But isn't that what we're doing here? And isn't that what radio, particularly jazz radio, has been for 60 years? It's been telling a story late in the night. I mean, those of us who came up in the 40s or 50s or even the 60s, that's how we uh, heard a lot of what we heard and learned a lot of what we learned by that voice in the night telling us a story. I think that's a big part of what made jazz what it was it's not that anymore obviously but some some of us like yourself and myself uh, still gravitate to the idea that jazz is powerful because it is a story because it's a narrative it's our story this is our story and by our story i mean it's open to everybody it's not you don't have to sign up you don't have to as a matter Matter of fact, this is about 35, 40 years ago. I worked at NPR for, for a little bit. I, I was hosting a show there. It's called Jazz Alive. And Jazz Alive was distributed across the United States. I think it had 280 stations and it was NPR. So we were able to reach out. And at one point we reached out to see who the jazz audience was. We solicited our listeners, please tell us about yourselves. Or we compiled all the letters that we got from listeners there was no typical jazz listener. They were young, they were old, they were black, they were white, they were urban, they were rural. The music speaks to people because it's so deeply human and everybody can relate to it in their, in their own way. So it's always been a part of jazz to be part of a, a larger narrative. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, musicians for years have referred to the jazz life as like, uh, well, Phil Woods called it being a warrior a jazz warrior. You lived it. Jazz was something you lived, not something you learned. And that's where the stories come in. The stories come from life. So let me ask you a couple of questions about the writing of the book itself. When you started it, was, was it difficult? Did you have, have periods of writer's block? Uh, yes, 
trying to find the voice. I, I, it took me uh, a couple of tries, really. I mean, and I guess I'm talking about a year or so of trying to write, find the right voice. I mean, I had Tommy's voice. I mean, it was all recorded and I transcribed it. And it's funny, while he was still alive, I showed it to some of them on a page. He said, that doesn't sound like me. I said, Tommy, it sounds exactly like you. And I said, you know, this is funny because so many singers, when they come into a recording studio and they put on earphones and get in front of a $10,000 microphone, the first thing they say is that doesn't sound like me. And Tommy has heard it, I don't know how many hundreds of times, but yet when it happened to him, when he saw what he sounded like on, on page, he, he, he didn't relate to it. So there was that, trying to find the voice. And eventually I reverted to the storyteller's voice. And I had Tommy's literal transcriptions in there when I needed it. But basically I treated it like once upon a time, kids, in, in a little town called Alamena in Sicily, there was a man who owned a limestone mine. You know, that's, mm. that's the voice I took. So while you were doing this, were there periods of discovery or a moment of discovery, uh, even though you had the transcripts and you've spent all this time with him one-on-one, -on -one, as you started writing it, was it all of a sudden something said, wow, I... I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Well, clearly I had, you know, Tommy LaPuma was a very successful uh, record business guy. You know, at one point he was chairman of uh, uh, United uh, uh, Universal Music's jazz labels. I mean, it's, he was as big as you could get. And I don't think anybody knew where he came from really. I mean, this, the, the story was out there that he dropped out of school, he became a barber, he started cutting hair, somehow he got into business and got to California. But the personal struggle re really surprised me when I got to the depth of it. And there's a scene in the book where Tommy goes back to this camp that he went to as a child. Now, for our listeners, we should say Tommy had a childhood disease that put him in bed at age 9, 10 for two years with a terrible infection. And when it was over, he wound up with one leg shorter than the other and he had to use a cane and he had to do a lot of therapy. And as he says, he learned what it was like to be the freak in the room. And he also says that one of the reasons he felt he was successful working with artists like Anita Baker or Miles Davis is because a lot of artists know what it's like to be the freak in the room. Although they're their wounds or disabilities are internal as opposed to physical. But finding out the depth of what Tommy went through and, and, and knowing him as a person who's positive and optimistic about the importance of music. I mean, he wasn't naive about uh, politics or any of that, but he, he kept his love going for the music. I could see almost physically how the business of music was like a log in, in a flood for him. He, he clung to it. And toward the end, he died in uh, 2017. So I, let's just say 2015. It was pretty obvious to all of us that the record business and the jazz business was, as Tommy would say, a was business. It was always a small business. But now with uh, the CD market back then was shrinking 10% a year. Everything was in streaming. There were these 360 deals where a company would sign a musician and then get a percentage of any 
work that he produced, as Tommy would say, you know, if a piano player came up with a cure for cancer, the company had a piece of that too. There, there was this real questioning on, on Tommy's part about, again, I say history decides what lives and what dies, about what was so important to him as a child and was it still important? How can we say that this music, Ben Webster, I mean, sitting and listening to Ben Webster with Tommy LaFuma was a religious experience, just the sound of that voice coming through. I mean, Tommy down deep would say, this is important music and that's an important musician, but to maintain that into the 21st century was, was tough. It was tough for all of us, but it was particularly tough for Tommy. Well, he was certainly passionate and committed to the music itself. You know, unlike a lot of producers who are not necessarily involved or engaged in music as he was, he was a saxophone player. He didn't want to be that barber. He, he, he knew from the beginning he hated cutting hair and took a job in a record warehouse just because he wanted to be connected to it. He wanted to smell the vinyl, so to speak. And, uh, you know, he went from $125 a week as a barber to 50 or a month, whatever the, the, the period of time was, but, and very much against his family's will or, or hopes and goals for him, but he knew what he wanted. And, and I think that that may be part of his engagement or how he has developed these relationships with so many people. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. He definitely was committed to what he was committed to. And, and he, he had this way of telling artists what his vision was and encouraging them to join him. And, and he was fearless. You know, he would, he would approach Barbara Streisand the same way, or Miles, the same way he would approach uh, a musician in, in college. And that is, he, he would share what he heard. He would share the direction he thought it should go into. And if the artist had a different opinion, he would never say no. He would always say yes in some way and let the artist's opinion sink or swim on its own being convinced of the rightness of his own vision. And of course, you know, that's the whole jazz message, you know, to believe in your voice, to believe in your story, to believe in your approach. You know, there's not a right or wrong way to play jazz music. Well, similarly, there wasn't a right or way to make these records or, or to go into a studio, you know, going into a recording studio is really a magic space and it's a very frightening space for most people, but not for Tommy. And so his comfort level, when you went into the room with him, immediately brought you to him. And he created a bond that way based on his, his own personal beliefs and the strength of his, uh, his ability to be who he was. You know, that, that's the thing. There's a little quote in the book where he's working with Paul McCartney at one point. Paul McCartney wanted to make this jazz record. And Tommy said, well, you know, he's got the voice. He can do it. He can sing it. But he couldn't own it for a while. And, and until they were doing this one song and Paul really owned the vocal and, and Tommy said, and you could just hear him realize that he was the guy singing the song. And some artists have to believe that in order to give a, a performance. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That's one of the things that a producer like Tommy did and does. His presence 
convinces you that you're the guy who's supposed to be in the room at that moment in front of that microphone delivering that story. And that's, that's studio magic if you can do it. Well, and he also, unlike so many other producers, wouldn't sit in the control room for a session, but instead would go into the studio with the musician. And I think that can either be intimidating or it can be very confidence-building from the perspective of, wow, the guy, I guess he's really interested in what I'm doing and what I'm creating here. Yeah. Well, he, he was one of the few producers who literally... Uh, didn't want to be in the control room, who insisted on being out in the room with the musicians playing. Now, I, after hearing all the details of his story as as a kid, felt very strongly that this was related, not just to the fact that he was a saxophone player and he identified with the musicians out in the room, as opposed to uh, the engineer in the control room. He wasn't a technical guy at all. But Part of what happened to him as a boy when he had this severe, severe infection and he was old enough. So this was before penicillin was really widespread. There weren't antibiotics. And so they were isolating him in a plastic room for, say, a month. And his parents came to visit him at one point. And he talks about how painful it was to be in this bubble, this plastic bubble, and not be able to touch his his mother and father. Mm. Well, when I realized that it was the there was a barrier, even though you could see through it, and that's just like his opposition to the control room. He he wanted to be close to people. He was really a people guy. And if the musicians out in the room were the people in question, he wanted to be with them. It wasn't you know he he wasn't a technical guy at all. He was very. Uh, in, in the human moment at all times. And that, w- that was really beautiful. And most of the musicians, I, I don't know of anybody who felt intimidated uh, by Tommy being in the room. He was such an affable guy and so positive. I don't think that ever was negative. It's, it's a fascinating story that you've produced and, and put together. And the man is not only a legend within the business, but I, I think you helped foster or promote that but from the perspective of the humanness and the personality of Tommy LaPuma. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's key to uh, the writing of this, the ballad of Tommy LaPuma. Uh, well, thank you. I, uh, I believe that Tommy is kind of a universal character because he was so much of himself. You know, it, it really was the way you're supposed to live as a musician. And he found a way to maintain that kind of artist's stance, even though he stopped playing his horn, which tells us, you know, you can be an artist in life. You, you can be an artist as a person. You can take the jazz teachings of find your voice, you know, cooperate with the rhythm section, whatever it is, and carry that into any aspect of life. It's just not just relevant to playing a saxophone. I mean, it's, there's something in jazz that Tommy embodied that I was putting my, I was planting a flag there. That's what I was doing. What is it that you hope readers will find uh, as a takeaway from this book? (sighs) That there was a time when giants walked the earth and they looked just like you and me. And that guys like Tommy LaPuma were just like you and me, only more so, you know? They, they were committed. They felt very strongly. 
and they were in it from the ground up. It wasn't a, it, it, it wasn't an occupation for them. It was the life. It was, it was life. And to, to be able to have your life be the same thing as what you love, is, it, it can be inspiring. So I think his story can be inspiring just as a way to move through the world. Would it be safe in saying that you just summed up your own personal feelings as a takeaway from your association and friendship with Tommy? Well, I would say that being with him and knowing him and, and spending a, a significant part of a half a century with him gave me some confidence to do what I was naturally going to do anyway. I mean, and that that's really the, the whole business. You know, when I was doing interviews, I used to ask musicians who had played with Miles Davis, what did Miles teach him and how? Because it was so mysterious. You never knew. And they all said, well, he didn't teach us anything. It was just his example. You know, he made it clear that you had to do your own thing, right? You had to be yourself. And that's how he brought it out of all his musicians. He just made it clear. Well, being around somebody like Tommy made it clear to me early on that you have to go to your strength. I mean, I met Tommy in 72 when the music business was really all about singer-songwriters. I mean, that's who they were signing. That's who they were promoting. Jazz was dead in the water. People don't realize it, but when rock and roll came in in the late 60s, it, it really killed off a lot of the jazz gigs, the jazz, everything. Radio, jazz just disappeared for a while. And because I had been connected to rock and roll guys like Steve Miller and Boz Skaggs, I was naturally encouraged to go in that direction by anybody in the record business. And keep in mind, back in 1972, there weren't that many people recording. Uh, today, there are millions of people making records and putting them out. But back then, you had to go to a record company. You had to go to a big deal recording studio and pay $300 an hour or something. So there was a lot of pressure on you to recoup the money you spent. And so I, I was not, it took me a while. Let me put it that way. It took me a while to figure out what was in my own best interest. I eventually figured out what I did best. And I made that, uh, and, it, and it didn't matter if I was writing a book or writing a song or making a record or doing media or something. There, there, there's this approach that feels comfortable to me that doesn't have a lot to do with money. Let me just say that. I am not a natural businessman. I've managed to do a large enough amount of work to make a living doing it. But the way I've made a living doing it is by, it's like a stool is more stable if it has four legs than three legs. So I tried to build four-legged stools. You know, I had all these ideas and not all of them would happen. And But if it was something that I liked doing and liked thinking about it, I, I didn't question it. I didn't second guess it. And I guess Tommy has a hand in that, had a hand in that, his example and his encouragement. I mean, I remember at one time uh, I was struggling. I had made, I'd made records. People, I guess, don't understand that you can be signed to a major label and be struggling and really be having trouble. But believe me, it's common. And I was having a lot of trouble. I was working really hard. I was traveling. I was trying. And it wasn't working for me. 
And I was complaining to Tommy one time, and he just summed it up for me. He said, oh, man, you just need a little success. That's all. And, that, and he was absolutely right. It, it, I didn't need a, a gold record. I, didn't need, I just needed a little success to encourage me, to make me feel good. Because in the end, what's the difference? We're going to leave it all behind anyway. If the last year hasn't taught us anything, it's taught us, mm-hmm. hey, you're going to leave it all behind anyway. You want to know what it's going to be like? It's going to be like this, real quiet. So getting that from Tommy was def- definitely helpful. And I, and I continued my career that way. I mean, I made this, the records that I made because I felt that at that moment, that was the best work I could do, not because somebody would play it or wouldn't play it. I, I I dug in. Well, you dug in very well, and this is a fascinating book, a fascinating story, and I hope that our listeners can check it out. It's The Ballad of Tommy LaPuma, and it's by Ben Sidron, and uh, it's, it's quite captivating as a read. It's one of those where once you start, it's hard to put it down. And Thanks. Well done, sir. Having said that, as I said at the top of the program, you're not only a, a jazz pianist and vocalist, but this broadcaster, a producer, composer, a writer, and you've written yet another book. Is, is that about to come out, or has it already been published? And that's There Was a Fire. There Was a Fire in the American Dream, is the subtitle, of the uh, Jewish person in the popular music business in America. So I was the artist in residence at the University of Wisconsin in 2003 or four or something. And so I invented a course called Jews Music and the American Dream just to see, you know, the Jews have never been more than 2% of the population of the United States, but they seem to be like 80% of the, of the action in the record business. It seemed odd to me. So I started following it, and eventually I discovered there was no one book that covered. There were great books about songwriters. There were books about publishers. There were books about business guys and gangsters and everything. But there wasn't one book that took this entire story of these people getting off the boat, these immigrants from the Pale of Settlement in, in Eastern Europe. And the Pale of Settlement was like a, a reservation that the czar put the the Jews on and they couldn't own property and they couldn't be citizens. And so you turned these 2 million folks loose in lower Manhattan at the turn of the 20th century and some amazing things started to happen. And the story starts really there with these immigrants getting off the, uh, off the boats from, from Germany and, and, basically coming up with aspects that turned into the American dream just by coincidence. For example, Emma Lazarus, who wrote the poem on the Statue of Liberty, uh, Give Us Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Tempest Tossed, right? That became the core of the American dream. I mean, really, when you think about it, up until then, America was the Wild West. That idea that, that America was a place that welcomed refugees, was really formulated in that poem. Emma Lazarus was a Jewish girl whose family had escaped the pogroms earlier on. And so, like Emma Lazarus, when the other Jewish refugees came to the United States, they looked at black America and they said, these are pogroms. The racism against 
African-Americans was very similar to, let's say, the racism against the Jews in Europe. The idea of race was just coming into focus, actually, at this time. Up until then, this idea of race didn't exist. And, and today, if you look at it, race is out of fashion again. So this was a, a time when the American dream was being formed, and it got formed in part through the music. And most of that music throughout that century was driven by, created by, performed by, recorded by blacks and Jews. And it's the relationship between blacks and Jews that I found so fascinating throughout the, the century. Now, the story of blacks has been told a lot the last 20 or 30 years. People like Wynton Marsalis have made sure that everybody understands the importance of Louis Armstrong. But the importance of the Jews has not been told. And, and, and it probably won't be told very often. Because, first of all, the Jews, by and large, don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be singled out in any way. And second of all, there's a lot of issues with the received wisdom that blacks were exploited by Jews. And that has created a certain amount of anti-Semitism, a serious amount of anti-Semitism in black America today. So anyway, that's the scope. That's, that's the landscape of this book. The book came out in originally 2011, and it did well. It was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. And, but then I wanted to take into account what we've just lived through. I'm talking about COVID, I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, and I'm talking about Donald Trump. And how these things affect what we call the American dream, the idea of social justice, the idea of the common man, the idea of, of democracy working for all of us, not just some of us. And of course, this is a dream. This is the American dream, but it's a dream. It's never been true, right? I mean, if you look back at the history, people came from Europe and immediately started a genocide, let's call it that, against the Native Americans. It, it, the, the history of this country, as people are learning to their dismay, but inevitably, is not what we were taught in school. So this, this last period with, with Trump and COVID was such a fertile subject to say, well, how can this idea of social justice and also something that's being carried through popular music, popular culture, how can it survive in these times? Can it survive in these times? And if not, what will we be sacrificing? What will we be losing as people? So for the last, um, boy, five years, I've been writing, it sounds crazy, I've been writing a new last chapter. And every time I thought the chapter was, was written, something else would happen, you know, something crazy. It's like history. What happened to history? Like first this happened and then that happened and this happened. History is just like an explosion. Every day you wake up and there's this explosion of history, almost to the point where I don't know if history even exists anymore the way it used to. So anyway, I got through it. I wrote the new last chapter. I've got a new introduction written by a wonderful sociologist named Howard Becker, who wrote a book called Outsiders, which is, if you're a sociologist, it's an important book. And uh, so there's this new edition of There Was a Fire, Jews, Music, and the American Dream, coming out in March of 2021. I know this has gone on for some time now, and, and it's hard not to speak for a long time with you because you're very engaging and personable. But one thing I'd like to finish up with today is 
talking about some of the music that you produced during this 2020. Uh, you put out a recording called Who's the Old Guy Now? Yeah. Uh, what was the inspiration for that? Did you feel like there's still something musically that needed to be said? The odd thing, and I've said this before, but it's it's still odd, is that all these things that, all, all these hats that I wear, they all feel like the same hat to me. Writing songs, writing a book, uh, doing journals, whatever it is. It's all kind of a different way. They're different grammars to tell the story. It's what we started out. It's, it's the storytelling to me. And so when I make a record, I am trying to tell my story. And so that's why I'm not really a songwriter's songwriter. They, a real songwriter can write a song about anything. I can't. I can only write about what happened to me on Tuesday. You know, that's as deep as I go. And who's the old guy now? It just came to that line came to me one day. Well, look who's the old guy now. And I guess I was thinking about back in the old days, I had all these heroes. And I would always try to get next to the to, to my heroes and see how they lived and, and see how they played and ask them questions. And I always wondered how they got the the sound they got, you know, like you listen to those old guys, they all sounded like old guys. They, <laughs> you could hear them right away and know who they were. And of course, as time passed, I realized it's just time. That's what happened to me too. Now I'm the old guy. When I was a young man, just getting started I didn't even have me a ride in the town I asked my heroes out on the corner I said now brother where'd you get that sound One by one The old men told me About what they'd done And sometimes how Well, step on up Take yourself a number Yeah, and take a look Who's the old guy now? I sound like me because it's the only way I can sound. It's not a trick. It's all I got. Well, that's what Ben Webster had. He just had this beautiful, beautiful voice, but it's not like it was an option. <laughs> you know, that's who he was. So I guess making this record was kind of a way to spit in the eye of the COVID thing, you know, where you're not supposed to go into a studio. Well, my son, who's this gifted, gifted musician, he plays all the different instruments and he's an engineer and he's, he was raised in the business. So of course he's good at it. Came to visit me uh, last August and he came for a month. He lives in Brooklyn. So he came out to Wisconsin and we spent a month. And about the third week in, we went into a studio and the two of us kind of made the record. 
And we always wanted to do that, see what would happen if just the two of us went in. What would it sound like? And it sounded kind of, well, it, he brought the sophistication and I brought the, uh, the schmaltz, you know. <laughs> and, or, no, 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 I have a better way to say it. I, I only had to carry a little water. But he had to dig the well. <laughs> he had to put the bucket down. He had to get the water up. He did a lot of it, and he and he allowed me to just write these songs about what does it feel like? I'm I'm 77 years old. You know, I I had never in my life expected to be the old guy. No, none of us do. But here we are. Old wine, new bottle. See everything that's old, they call it new today. You wanna change the way you look, you gotta look the other way. It goes around and comes around just like that old cliche. But how are we gonna miss you if you don't go away? Old wine, new bottle. Old wine, new bottle. Old wine, new bottle. So that was all that explains kind of the motivation for what that was. And there's a couple of songs on there that came out great. One of them is that song, uh, Look Who's the Old Guy Now. Yeah, that's great. And, 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 you know, it's kind of funny in a way because the release is Who's the Old Guy Now, but it only has five tracks. Uh, and since you're the old guy now, did you forget all the other lyrics or the songs? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Yeah, you, it's it's because we only had a week and I could only come up with five tunes, really. But people uh, put out EPs or whatever. And I felt, you know, this is the music I was doing today. Why not just put it out there? And, and here's the other thing that's so confounding to me is that we don't put out CDs anymore. I mean, we make CDs to send to radio and stuff like that. But there's such a thing as a digital record. I don't even know what that means. I honestly don't know what that means. What's the difference between a digital recording and streaming? I'm sure there is. I just don't know it. You know, reason has left the building as far as I'm concerned. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this business is. I just know I'm going to keep doing this because it makes me feel good. When I hear who's the old guy now, I, every time I hear it, it I just feel good. It kind of lightens my load a little bit. Well, you know what else makes me feel good? And I'm, I presume uh, would you as well as anyone who listens to it is one of the tracks is called We the People. That's an outstanding track. And maybe it's because it came out in this year, which is highly politicized. Uh, did you mean this as some sort of a political epitaph? Oh, absolutely. I wrote that as just a reminder to everybody who we are. And so that song starts out with me reading from the Constitution of the United States, we the people. And just to remind you, that's what it says, in order to form a more perfect union to, for security. We, that's how the United States came to be. One, two, one, two, three. <laughs> In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and 
promote the general welfare and security, the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Because we the people, we the people, we are the people, we the people. It ain't no lie if it's true, ain't no me, ain't no you, ain't no red, white, and blue, it's just people. And then the, the the other language, there's no black, there's no white, there's no wrong, there's no right. The whole point is, you know, we're putting labels on everything when in fact, it's just us. We're just people. I personally believe, for example, that racism can't exist, can't exist because there's only one race. It's the human race. Everything else is local color. So what we're taking and calling racism, it's just colorblindness. It, it, it's people need to stop putting negative charges on various aspects of their lives. And, and there's no them, there's no us, there's no get off the bus, there's no more to discuss, we're just people. And so that, that's what that song is about. This whole circus of, of anger, it's, uh, what would you say, what did Shakespeare say? Signifying nothing. <laughs> it signifies nothing. It's amazing how much time, resources, and energy we waste on, on chasing our own tails like this. So anyway, that's what We the People was, and I absolutely put it out there and realized, you know, there's not really a format for it to be played in. I mean, jazz stations can't play it. It's not really a jazz song. I do. Uh, rap stations won't play it, but who, who knows if anything gets played anyway. So there, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for digging. Well, it, it's a great tune, uh, as is the, the whole release. Uh, and, and it kind of puts a lot of things in perspective. And sometimes, like you said, uh, we're all taking ourselves a little too seriously. Uh, we need to lighten up a little bit and enjoy what's left for us. That's Boy, that sums it up to a T for me. Oh, great. Don't take yourself quite that seriously. You know, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. That's a fact. I'll tell you what, I have had so much fun in reconnecting with you, Ben. This has been a delightful period of conversation, and I hope there's more to come for the future and that in 2021, you'll be our most downloaded episode once again. Well, from your mouth to God's ear, Ellen. <laughs> So thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us. And what kinds of things, by the way, should we look for 2021? Anything uh, yet still uh, in, in the mind? You know, I think like most musicians, I'm just really looking forward to getting out and performing. When this thing breaks, we're just going to embrace each other in public so hard and to embrace the ability to be in a room together. And that's, that's what I'm looking forward to, going out and playing a gig in a club. Well, let's hope we can all be in that same room together. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today on All That's Jazz. Thank you. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Ben Sidrin. For more information about this artist, please visit his website, bensidrin.com. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Join us next week for a conversation with recent Grammy-nominated bassist, composer, and educator, Greg August. 
If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.